We're expecting about 30 cell-based therapies, over 30 gene-based therapies approved in close to 50 manufacturers in this space. It's very promising for all the patients that stand to benefit from this. It brings up this very interesting challenge as they start to move away from niche indications with very high unmet need to much more chronic conditions where there is an existing standard of care that is oftentimes considered good enough. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Curtis. Today, we'll be talking about successful launch and commercialization of cell and gene therapies. While cell and gene therapies have been around for a while, they've really struggled to be successful. In the past 10 years, we've seen a shift in strong market growth in a very crowded and competitive pipeline. However, many challenges still remain. Joining me for today's discussion is my colleague, Sankalp Sethi, leader of the ZS Associates Global Cell and Gene Therapy Vertical. Sankalp, thank you for joining us today. Hi everyone, my name is Sankalp Sethi. I'm a partner with ZS in our Boston office. I lead ZS's Cell and Gene Therapy Vertical that focuses on accelerating and simplifying the process of bringing the life-changing innovations to market. Pleasure to be here. I know this is a topic that we both feel pretty passionately about and, and work quite extensively in. Um, I think maybe to kind of kick this off, you know, cell and gene therapies, they've been around for a while, but we've really seen them struggle to, to break into the market and really be successful. Um, but we are starting to see this change, right? Like the past couple of years, we're seeing the strong market growth. If we look ahead, actually global sales are expected to be over 36 billion by 2026. What do you think has really been driving a lot of the interest in the space? You know, really exciting numbers when you say that by 2026, over 36 billion. You know, in, in some ways, if we go back a little bit in time, this is the second stint for cell and gene therapies, right? The first human um, on which a gene therapy was administered was over 30 years ago now. Um, and, and, and that patient w- w- had great response, but many of the uh, next set of patients and technologies that came in uh, ran into a lot of the safety issues and and you know we we saw a general pause in 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 the development in this space but uh recent years i'd say last 10 years or so uh we've seen a huge uptick and and i think we can go back to uh, some of the positive data that came out of uh, the kimraya trial in 2012 and we saw a huge proliferation in cd19 trials as a result you know, we've seen similar results now with BCMA targeted agents when uh, we saw the, saw the tolerability and efficacy coming out of the, uh, the trial and, and some really uh, deep response rates. And over the next set of years, you know, close to 80 BCMA trials were initiated. And so as a result, we've seen, you know, over 1,000 plus ongoing clinical trials in this space. And by 2025, if you look at some of the stats, we're expecting about 30 cell-based therapies, over 30 gene-based therapies approved, and maybe close to 50 manufacturers in this space. And, and that, uh, to me, is very exciting. It's very promising for, for, for all the patients that stand to benefit from, uh, uh, from this. Um, you know, and, and if you think about where some of the investments have been so far and where we expect to go, uh, so far we've seen a lot of cell-based therapies today in oncology. I think we expect a lot of this uh, to start to enter into other spaces like type 1 diabetes now. Uh, we saw some of the recent results from uh, from Vertex uh, in that space. 
in multiple sclerosis potentially and other uh, non-oncology spaces. It is really interesting to just see how much growth that that's kind of underway right now, right? You know, the science has been proven to an extent. And so this is definitely leading to a lot more interest and investment from a really diverse range of companies that are wanting to get in the space. I, I think we had looked at some data that, you know, between 2018 and 2020, there were over 350 cell and gene therapy alliances and acquisitions. You know, so, so with this explosion of interest, very much what you just said, right, there's a whole lot more diversity in the types of indications that are, are now in development for cell and, and gene. And it just really brings up this very interesting challenge that manufacturers are going to have to face as they start to move away from these niche indications with very high unmet need to much more chronic conditions where there is an existing standard of care that is oftentimes considered good enough. You know, proving the value of a gene therapy in something like diabetes or HIV or hemophilia, like you mentioned, well, I think that's going to be significantly more difficult than it was when you look at something like Solgensma and, and SMA. Um, but, but, you know, kind of like Sankalp to your earlier points, you know, with all this experience, there's just a lot more awareness and education for healthcare providers and patients and a lot of improved efficacy and safety profiles of these new products um, that is really kind of driving a lot of the, the growth and opportunities of the market in the future. Um, but, you know, kind of looking back, Sankalp, beyond some of the challenges with lack of awareness and experience, there have also been a lot of really other significant challenges that companies have faced. Like, what would you say have been some of the, the biggest and what's the impact been? You know, I call it the Concord problem. Concord could get people across the Atlantic at over twice the speed. It wasn't just a marvel of engineering, but its entire shape was optimized to maximize its speed. Yet, it failed uh, to other more efficient and scalable commercial airlines. Concord was too expensive. It had very lim limited range and couldn't really scale. Um, and we face many of the same risks in the cell and gene therapy industry. Today, not enough patients could get treated. Providers aren't able to recoup the cost, and payers aren't feeling this, or payers are feeling the squeeze. And and pharma isn't making the money that's commensurate with the high investments that they've paid for these therapies. So let's break that down from a patient perspective. Not enough patients are getting these therapies today. I was speaking with one of the patients recently, and she had to go through six different referrals to eventually uh, get a treatment uh, on the on a cell therapy um, and that was after you know after she had obviously been diagnosed and considered potentially being eligible uh, she still had to go through six different rounds of, of referrals i think that points to the just the lack of uh, education and awareness within the community of these cell therapies and understanding of really uh, who is the right patient to put these therapies on and also some of the fundamental barriers, you know, it could be economic, it could be clinical or otherwise around uh, referral that may stop a community provider from uh, referring one of these patients to a delivery center or a treatment center. And so I think so many of those barriers still need to be addressed for more patients to stand to benefit from these therapies. From a provider perspective, they got into it for the right reasons. They wanted to offer the most innovation, innovative breakthrough therapies to their patients and challenging are the, the most innovative therapies to, to meet the needs of many of their most severe patients. But as we've been learning so far, it's been hard for providers to 
really recoup the costs that they put in in managing and caring for a patient. We've seen how the at least in 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 cell therapies, while the cost of the therapy may be three four hundred thousand dollars, the total cost of care for a patient in many cases could be upwards of a million dollars. Medicare only reimburses a, a small proportion of that, and that puts a big hole in the providers' budgets and their willingness to really take this on in a big way. And these therapies are also putting a lot of pressure on the parents. There's a question about durability. Will we really see the long-term efficacy and the impact that these therapies are promising uh, to uh, realize the high cost uh, of these therapies that, uh, that they've been listed at? Or will we perhaps see, you know, over the, the near term or a midterm, you know, relapses and remissions that that uh, put into question the, the, the same prices that they've been approved at. And then there's the question of just the balancing the books from a payer perspective. It's the budget pressure that these therapies are creating from a cost immediate cost standpoint. And we're seeing some plans or some payers thinking about removing or carving out gene therapies from their plans and excluding it. And others like Cigna offering you know, membership programs uh, that could cover this at an additional cost. And so, you know, as we think about the future where more and more of cell and gene therapies become standard of care, justifying the high cost of these at scale is gonna be a question. And that is something that um, we have to think about through different solutions. I think there's been some innovations in, in, in innovative payment models and value-based contracts that have been uh, experimented with. And I think we're going to want to see more of those in, in the future uh, for some of these challenges to go away. From a pharma perspective, the money's not there yet. There's definitely the promise of it long term, but so far we've not seen that or, or pharma hasn't quite seen that yet. The, these therapies have come at a huge investment for at least many of the big pharma that have acquired these uh, these innovations at several hundreds of millions of dollars in case in many cases over a billion dollars and and the revenues have been small they've been targeting small patient populations at least initially the margins are super thin you know they're a fraction compared to the margins that we've seen with biologics and and uh, small molecules and that's putting pressure on the businesses and business units that have been driving these therapies uh, within pharmaceuticals, right? The, the ROI on many of these investments is much lower than what pharma is used to uh, seeing as ROI is. And, and so while today, a lot of these have been carved out and, and have been given sort of special status within pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, because of the long-term uh, benefit from it, I think we're gonna want to see some shifts in the financials over the midterm for there to be continued investments in this space and, uh, and for the long-term sustainability uh, of the space overall. I work a lot in European markets and call one of the core challenges that comes up again and again, this whole reimbursement and access. I mean, this really has been the most significant barrier in European markets. So looking back to some of the early days of gene therapy, right? Thinking of Glybera, the first gene therapy that got approval in Europe. I think there were only one or two patients across all of Europe that got on therapy. Um, and that's because when it was launched, it was the most expensive treatment that had ever been offered. I think it was around a, a million dollars. And payer systems just really were not set up for this. And it really struggled to get reimbursement. 
as a result, a couple of years later, the company decided to not renew the marketing authorization and withdrew from, from Europe. And this is a challenge that we've seen play out a few times, right? And, and it's a function really of the, the healthcare structure. Um, you mentioned it in the, the U.S., and the payment model, same, same issue here, but you're dealing with multiple markets. And so the healthcare system and payer systems are really not set up to do a one-off payment. Um, and if a product does get reimbursed, it's going to be at a much lower price than what you'd expect to see in the U.S., which really then leads to companies questioning, is it worth trying to commercialize this in, in Europe? So it's not unusual that we see companies decide to exit uh, the European market as a result. For example, like what we saw happen with Bluebird and Integlio after failing to negotiate a price with the German health authorities. So it's, it's still a challenge that hasn't fully been figured out. We're seeing some really positive signs. Um, it's really kind of questioning the traditional evidence generation strategy and how this connects to innovative payment models. But even those are really difficult to implement because how do you measure effectiveness? It's usually really hard to define and it requires a lot more evidence generation than companies are, are usually able to provide. And these tend to be very small patient populations. So even harder to extrapolate that. So I think it's something that we're starting to see some progress on, but it, it still really remains a barrier. But maybe on that point, you know, we're, I think we're starting to talk about some of the positive signals that we're seeing. Um, we have seen more success recently. For example, Kim Raya on the cell therapy side and Solgensma and gene therapy. Um, what do you think has really been driving that shift? A couple of things come to mind here. Um, as we think about the delivery network here, uh, we've seen a, uh, a massive expansion in that in, you know, over the last four or five years. We've seen how the growth in the CD19 CAR-Ts in the U.S. Uh, was correlated with a lot of the network expansion that came with it uh, over the you know the last several years and so um, th that provides a great foundation now for the next generation uh, of cell therapies that are coming to market uh, but it also points to i think we we still have a long way to go um, as we uh, think about the you know the hundreds of thousands of patients that we um, uh, talked about earlier stand to benefit from these therapies and then the other piece i'd say clinically too we've seen uh, some good innovation or and improvements in this space. We've seen how you know the the third CD19 uh, to market Brianzi had a you know safer uh, sort of and more tolerable profile and and more suited perhaps for uh, outpatient care. Similarly, on the efficacy side too, we're seeing the next generation uh, providing a lot more promise than than the ones before. You know already you know the response rates for these therapies have been so massive, but we're seeing even uh, improvements over that. The second BCMA that, uh, from uh, Janssen and Legend that might come into the market has shown really deep, uh, complete response rates, and uh, and uh, and that's very promising. Uh, I think for patients and and uh, multiple myeloma patients and beyond, and where these therapies can go in the future. Yeah, and and I think kind of you know building on those points, what I would add to that is is more around a awareness and access. So on the awareness side, most you know physicians, healthcare professionals, they're a lot more experienced now. They have a lot more personal experience using these, so a lot more comfortable. And and really, there's just no substitute for that. 
Um, and on the patient side, we've also seen the effect of unbranded education campaigns. And these have re been really effective at raising awareness. You know, I can think of a, a few television shows where essential characters have been considering or have been on gene therapy. So it's getting patients more exposure to these concepts. They still have questions. Um, and there are a lot more education that needs to happen, but it's becoming a lot more accessible and, and certainly leading to more conversations with physicians. Um, the second point, and, and kind of talks to the earlier challenge of access, um, with Zolgensma specifically in Europe, um, this is a, a disease where you have to get an injection of Zolgensma within two years of age, and, and patients literally cannot afford to wait for this very long, drawn-out pricing and negotiations process before they get it. Um, so recognizing this, Novartis did a great job with their day one access program in Europe, which ensured that as soon as Zolgensma was improved, patients could start using it even before the national pricing and reimbursement agreements were in place. And I think this did a really effective job at demonstrating the belief that Novartis had in the value of Zolgensma and the commitment to partner with healthcare systems to find a solution without making patients wait for it to get access. Um, so I think we're starting to really see some tangible examples of breaking down some of the challenges in the past and, and hopefully we're on a good trajectory for the future. Um, but you know, kind of reflecting a bit on the conversations that we've had and some of the challenges, a lot of them seem like they're very unique um, to the situation and even kind of like the technologies behind cell and gene therapy. And it's just making me think about uh, a comment that I often hear that, you know, commercializing a cell and gene is very similar to a typical rare disease, you know, particularly if you think about a gene therapy. And, you know, while I think there are certainly similarities, given that most of these indications are rare diseases, I actually think it's a lot more complex, but I'm curious, like, what would your view on it be? You know, so many things are different from uh, gene therapy, and I'd say even oncology for that matter. Um, in my mind, it comes down to three things, though. Uh, you know, number one is demonstrating value. Given the high cost of these therapies and the limited data that's typically available at the time of regulatory filing, there is this pressure to demonstrate value in all different ways and a critical need to work with regulatory bodies early um, to define the right endpoints, the evidence requirements, and, and also perhaps working with Many of the stakeholders like advocacy groups to provide support for the unmet need and support for the innovations that, that you're developing. You know, number two, closer to commercialization, the thing that becomes most important in this space and most unique, I'd say, is the experience. You know, experience could be an afterthought in other spaces, but it's so core to the commercialization here. You know, more than the product, it's the service that you're delivering to the provider that factors uh, like your ability to meet the product demand, meeting their expectation, the time it takes to deliver the product, the digital engagement with different parts of the patient journey, the quality, consistency, and the timeliness with which you supply the product has so much more impact in this space versus sales and marketing promotion to your customer. As a result, you know the manufacturers have to design a process both internally and externally uh, to make this experience easy for the provider, uh, or the customer, I should say, uh, and not not the manufacturer. You know, and so building digital solutions that can help manage the needs across the patient journey become a big part of the space, given the personalized nature of the therapy and the delivery model here. 
And then the last one I'd say is the number three is the manufacturing and supply chain in this space generates so much data. You know, per one estimate, autologous therapies yeah, generate about 400 data points across all the touch points for a single patient's journey. You know, that immense powerhouse of data becomes extremely valuable for commercial manufacturing and even R&D purposes, or translation purposes. You know, impacts what patient types you must draw from to maximize the outcomes and scale. Uh, it can give you inputs on your experience around many of the dimensions I talked about earlier. Um, and it becomes critical resource to helping find the answers to the long-term scale problem that manufacturers need to address here for the viability in the space. So manufacturers must build the connected information system that can leverage this data across the organization and also build the organizations that can work cross-functionally with this data in order to maximize the value. I think that's the unique part here. It's the, it's the magnitude of the data as well as the need for having an organization that's truly cross-functional. You know, you, the, the oncology or the rare disease, the, the silos in, in the biotech and the pharma can't really uh, help a CGT company really thrive here. Uh, and the silos need to uh, be broken down through this kind of a connected information backbone, but also in the ways that the organization comes together. All really, really good points. And I and also kind of thinking about this from a, a European lens, um, a lot of, of those considerations also just bring up a lot of complexity. Because when we think about Europe, it's actually multiple markets. And so finding a, a one size fits all solution for, for some of the considerations you mentioned, it's just not really possible. Um, you know, like, for example, there are many different countries with many different healthcare payer systems, data privacy, regulatory requirements. And when we think about cell and gene, this becomes, you know, particularly acute um, as you think about the need to manage supply chain and all the manufacturing logistics and maintaining this seamless experience for healthcare providers and patients. Um, and where you know, in, in other situations, you, you can build out a, a centralized European solution, you just really can't hear. And so I think this is one of the, the challenges that manufacturers have, have really tried to overcome and, and have made some progress on, but it, it still remains very much um, a challenge that needs to be tackled. And I think also one of the implications of that is for many of the end users, you know, the healthcare providers and patients, they have to negotiate all these different rules and, and protocols, and it really becomes overwhelming. And, and I think this is a, another example where um, Novartis did a really great job with Zolgensma and really have an understanding of that and really proactively, um, you know, engaging with different stakeholders with their day one access program to remove some of those barriers. So, I mean, I think there have been a lot of interesting kind of themes and, and topics that we touched on in this discussion, Sinkalp, and kind of as we, we circle back, um, as we start looking ahead, we know that in the next five to 10 years, there are going to be a lot of companies that are going to be bringing these therapies to market. You know, learning from these examples, what should companies do and where should they really be investing in? I think we're facing a conquered moment. Concord could get you across the Atlantic in less than three and a half hours. It was two to three times faster than any commercial airline at that point. Yet, the market chose efficiency 
over effectiveness, right? Eventually, the Concord failed, and it wasn't due to their safety crashes. Yes, they had the safety issues, but they recovered from it. The market chose efficiency because it was a lot cheaper. You could scale really, and and many more um, people could travel across the Atlantic on commercial airlines than than they could in a in a Concord. And I think we're facing some of the similar issues right now. And so the first thing as an industry we need to solve is profitability you know that that has to change for continued investment in this space and continued support for all the innovation that we've been seeing in this space and how do you get to profitability i think manufacturing technology is one part of it there's many closed loop automation systems and point of care manufacturing solutions that are being tested uh, in early stages of development today, and and those need to need to have continued support um, from the investors, from the life sciences community, in order uh, to solve some of these uh, the cost of goods problem that we have in this space. Uh, but also, we need to look at it from a portfolio perspective and make the investments in the right kind of portfolio. Right, so millions and millions are being spent in R and D. Um, or business development, they have to be justified long term by technologies that can um, that can truly pay off on those investments. And uh, this may be by looking at perhaps different platforms like an allo cell platform or platforms that can bring efficiency to the development and commercialization process. Um, so I do think we need to solve for for profitability, and that will take not just a process reengineering, but also some rethinking around the future pipeline and portfolio and making investments judiciously in, in those spaces to to help uh, solve for, for this problem. I think the other piece I'd say is uh, just different or novel go-to-market approaches. You know, our approach thus far has been uh, force-fitting the existing pharma models into commercializing cell and gene therapies, uh, but we need different unique approaches that make this more efficient. For example, pharma has been very traditional by going both deep and broad with customer engagement. Um, and the, the question I have at this point is, is if that's really yielding result. You know, despite four years in the market, for example, only a third of TLBCL eligible patients are still getting a CAR T. And we call on, you know, our, our companies that are promoting these products are calling on many, many customers uh, in order to drive referrals and drive the treatment in the space. Um, so something for us to for the next set of uh, uh, players and, and even existing players to think through with, with regards to their customer engagement strategies that will be more efficient and more effective in, in growing the market um, as well as driving the brand choice. And the last piece I'll say is, you know, bringing more standardization uh, to, uh, to ease the scalability in this space. Uh, today, every pharma company is building their own set of processes for ordering, for shipping, and management of these therapies. And that's for the first set of therapies. You know, providers wanted to get into it for the right reasons, and they've, they've been making or working around, uh, you know, each company's unique processes. But that will need to be standardized as we scale to 50-plus cell and gene therapy products. There is no way a, pro a provider can um, deal with every, a unique process for each and every one of these uh, products. And there are third parties uh, that are working on some of the standardization initiatives, including building digital platforms that can make it easier for providers in the future to serve more patients by bringing more of these therapies on board 
in an easy way. As we look ahead, it's clear we're at an inflection point and the future is going to offer a wide range of options to patients that will continue to have an impact on their lives. It's also going to create challenges in terms of who gets access to these cell and gene therapies and if they really are appropriate for chronic conditions that could otherwise be managed with conventional therapy. We know from looking back at launch stories that we still need to do the basics well when we launch one of these therapies. We have to understand the market, define the opportunity the customer needs, know what the value proposition is, and really design and implement the right go-to-market model and customer-facing goals. But we also need to really choose where we're going to go all in to differentiate in priority areas cannot do everything well, and so really need to choose where there is a competitive advantage, whether that's partnering with healthcare systems to really drive access, using data to really build the power of the network, or redefining what customer experience looks like. The strategic choices manufacturers make will be fundamental to stand out from the competition in the next era of cell and gene therapy launches. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again for joining us on another edition of the ZS Associates Inside Global Pharma podcast.